The scripture this morning is from uh, Matthew's Gospel, it's chapter 8, verses 5 through 17. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and he said to those following him, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then he said to the centurion, go. It will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word, and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill that which was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. The word of the Lord. Now, in these weeks up to Easter, we're looking at the life of Jesus. And we're doing it through the uh, Gospel of Matthew. And when we look at the life of Jesus, we, you are always struck, if you ever read through it, by the number of his miracles. Now, what I've done is I've chosen a, a fairly generic passage. In fact, there's a, a, a healing just before uh, chapter, chapter 8, verse five, uh, 1 to 4. There's the healing of the centurion's servant. There's healings afterwards. And there's many other healings in the book of Matthew. What I want to do, just kind of briefly today, is to give you what I would call a high-level way of understanding the miracles of Christ. Because if you don't understand the miracles of Christ, you don't understand him. And the reason it's important to talk about is the only other people we know, as it were, with supernatural miraculous power are fictional figures. They're either uh, figures in legends, ancient legends, or modern fiction. So ancient legends, Merlin. Modern fiction, superheroes, Superman. They have non-natural powers. They have supernatural powers. But I want to show you that in the stories of the world, the supernatural powers, miraculous powers, always works in a completely different way than it works in Jesus' life. And that tells us a lot about Jesus. Jesus' miracles are proof, pointer, and pattern. They're part of the proof of who he is. They're a pointer to where he wants to take the world. And they're a deep pattern of how he comes to save us. So first of all, 
They're part of the proof of who he is. Now you see, not just here, down in, at the very end, the, the miracles fulfill, verse uh, 17, the, some Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Uh, over and over, you'll see places in the Bible where it says, and he did this, and he did this, and his disciples believed in him. Therefore, obviously, one of the reasons that Jesus does these great miracles is to, is to show the world that he's the divine son of God, to show his greatness. The centurion here, interestingly enough, tells us a little bit about how great he must be. Because the centurion says, I'm a man under authority. Now, what he means by that is I have been given a certain number of soldiers. And inside that sphere of authority that I've been given, my word is law. In other words, I'm abs- I have absolute power inside my sphere of authority. I say something and they do it. But then he says, so you don't even need to come to my home. What is he saying? He is saying the whole world is the sphere of your authority. Jesus isn't a, the centurion knows Jesus isn't a miracle worker that has to get in the room and has to sew abracadabra and do all the stuff you see in legends. The whole world is the sphere of his authority. And what that means is he says all you have to do is say it. All you have to do is think it and, and he'll be healed. So the miracles are a way of showing us uh, part of the evidence of who he is. Now, I need to do a little sidebar. I have to. Because at least when I was first coming on as a Christian, uh, quite a while ago, in the 60s and 70s, one of the very main reasons many people said that Jesus can't be real, that these things must be legends, is because of the miracles. Uh, On my college campus, one of the main reasons people couldn't believe in Christianity, they said, is because MCH, miracles can't happen. Miracles can't happen. Now, are you aware of the fact that that things have changed? That that is not as big an objection as it used to be? Uh, In fact, one of the ways we found that out was I did a question and answer time. I used to do question and answer times after the morning and evening services. We had two services over at Hunter College. And I remember one time I was preaching on, uh, I think it was John 6 and Jesus feeding the 5,000. And I said, "If if you believe miracles can't happen, you know, MCH, I want to see you right after the service. I'm ready for you. I'm loaded for you. Yeah, I want to talk to you about this. And so I was all ready. And very few people came. This was like 1997. In fact, the only people who came were men over the age of 45. And I began to realize there's a certain kind of person that still felt like miracles cannot happen. But for various reasons, that's a, major- that's a minority opinion in the world today. You know that. You might not, if, if you feel like miracles can't happen, you might be a little bit irritated by my saying so, but it's a fact. And there's a couple of reasons why. Here, here's two possible p- positions for you if you say miracles can't happen. You could either say, I believe in God and miracles can't happen. Wait a minute, that's a non sequitur. <laughs> if there's a God, why? It'd be perfectly reasonable to believe in miracles. How could miracles not happen if there's a God? Okay, you say, I don't believe in God and miracles cannot happen. Okay, but let me be a little mischievous here. You have heard of quantum mechanics and chaos theory, which says now, in the last 20, 30 years, we've learned that uh, at, the, at the atomic and subatomic level, the so-called laws of nature we think are ironclad laws don't work, and therefore the universe is much more open than we think. In other words, if there is no God, anything can happen. Anything has happened. 
How can you say you don't believe in miracles? Now, here's my point. My point is, to say miracles cannot happen is a leap of faith. It's a dogmatic a priori assumption. And I don't want you to be so dogmatic that you can't stand back and see the, the real evidence for who Jesus is, I mean, for the power of the, re- the reality and the truth of Christianity, is the, is the full portrait of Jesus. This centurion, how did he know Jesus could do this? He'd never seen Jesus work like this. How did he know? Jesus is even astonished. But the point is he'd been contemplating. He'd been looking at the totality. He'd been looking at Jesus' claims of deity. He'd been looking at Jesus' life. He'd been looking at the way he deals with people. He'd been looking at the, at, at, at the power of Jesus and the sweetness of Jesus. And he'd come to the conclusion, this must be the Son of God. And that is the most compelling argument for Jesus, for, for Christianity, is to look at every part of who Jesus is and to say, how could all this come together in one person? A friend of mine, Dick Lucas, once talked to a skeptic who said, if I had a watertight argument for the existence of God, I'd believe... And he came back and said, what if God didn't give us a watertight argument for his existence, but a watertight person, Jesus Christ, against whom in the end there can be no argument? And what he means by that is the sum total of everything about Jesus, including his miracles, is a compelling evidence that he really is the Son of God. Don't let a dogmatic uh, leap of faith keep you from at least considering contemplating the totality of who he is. So miracles are a proof. B, miracles are a pointer to where he wants the world to go. Let's, again, contrast Jesus' supernatural miraculous power with some, with some of the figures we know. Jesus' power cannot only be a demo. It can't only be a demonstration of his power. Why? Because if so, he would do things like Merlin and Superman. So here's what Superman can do. He says, you don't believe I'm Superman? Watch. I'll blow the top of that mountain off with my x-ray vision. Okay? And you'll say, yo, you really are Superman. All right, fine. But you never see Jesus doing stuff like that. You never see him blowing the tops off of mountains or things like that, which would be perfectly fine. Why doesn't he do that? He doesn't do that. Why? Because the miracles are not simply naked displays of power pointing to him. They're actually pointing to where he wants the world to go. All Jesus' miracles, essentially all his miracles, deal with the suffering of the human race. They deal with the suffering of the human race. B.B. Warfield, a biblical scholar, says, the number of the miracles that Jesus Christ did may easily be underrated. It has been said that, in effect, he banished the disease and death from Palestine for three years. If this is exaggeration, it is pardonable exaggeration. <laughs> For wherever he went, he brought a blessing. We greatly underestimate his beneficent activity as he went about feeding the hungry, healing the sick and the blind and the deaf, liberating the oppressed, raising the dead, as Luke said, going everywhere, doing good. Jesus' miracles were not just naked displays of power. They were dealing with human suffering, and that means they pointed where? They point back, way back, and ahead, way ahead. Why? What do you mean? First of all, do you realize where they're pointing? They're pointing way back, way back to the way the world was when God first made it, the way the world was when it was the way God wanted it to be. When he feeds the hungry, he's pointing us back to a time in which there were no little children with swollen bellies dying of starvation. When he heals the sick and the leper 
and raises the dead. He's pointing back to a world in which there was no suffering or disease or death. And when he stills the storm, he's pointing to a time in which nature was our friend, not our enemy. And we, didn't, we weren't always dying because of blizzards and avalanches and earthquakes and tsunamis. He's pointing back to the way the world was before sin and our turning away from God, the true ruler of the world, broke everything apart. And therefore, as we've said before, miracles, you must understand this, Jesus' miracles are not primarily suspensions of natural laws. They are the restoration of natural law. See, death and decay and suffering are, are, are they are suspensions of God's original natural order, and Jesus Christ in his miracles is putting it back, at least temporarily. And that's why one theologian says Jesus' healings are the only natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonic, and wounded. And then, of course, Jesus' uh, miracles are not just pointing way back, they're pointing way ahead, and he even mentions the Messianic feast. Verse 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's talking about something that the Old Testament prophets and book of Revelation talks about, and that is someday when God comes back to really rule, you know, Psalm 96, then will the trees of the woods sing for joy, then will the sea roar and sing for joy, for he comes to rule the earth, and when Christ comes back to rule the earth, he will heal everything, and it'll be like a feast. No more sickness, no more decay, no more crime, no more war, no more suffering, no more death, no more tears. And that means Jesus' miracles prove that he is no happier with the way things are than you and I. And that means we have a radical agenda. Jesus' miracles give us a radical agenda. What are they? Now, listen very carefully, because I'm trying to nuance what I'm about to say. When Jesus Christ shows that he is not happy with the way things are, that he even now temporarily is dealing with the suffering and the injustice and the, and the disease and the hunger through his miracles, and that it's a foretaste of what he's going to do eventually. But what that means is while we're here, we too need to be just as, have just as much holy dissatisfaction, holy dissatisfaction with the injustice and the brokenness and the sickness and the suffering that we see out there. And we want to do something about it. Christianity is a fighting religion. When we see cancer or a slum, C.S. Lewis says, we say that ought not to be and we do what we can. In fact, Jesus actually says in chapter 14 of John, whoever believes in me will do the works I do and even greater. And if you think that means miraculously dealing with suffering, no, we're not going to do greater. Because you can even look in the book of Acts and you'll see even though his disciples, his apostles did a few miracles, nothing like what Jesus could do. We should never think that that's what he means. What he means is a billion people who are working off the same agenda out there can do greater works than even I do. Now here's what I mean by nuance. Do you see, and I, we don't have the time to go into this, over and over and over again, when Jesus does a miracle, he is concerned about the faith of the person that he is helping. So when the woman with a hemorrhage touches his garment and she's healed, he insists that she come out and profess her faith. If you look carefully, and if we had time to go through this, you'll see that he actually pushes back a bit uh, uh, on the centurion, and he's trying to say, now what is it you want me to do? You want me to go and heal? I, I, we don't have time to go into this, but he's concerned to see the, the centurion's faith, and here's what that means. The greatest thing you can do for anybody is not heal their body. 
It's to give them a permanent and therefore eternal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the greatest thing anybody can, you can do for anyone, anyone you love, is faith. And Jesus shows that that's the most important thing, not making the world a better place. And yet, he ministers in word and deed. He seeks to get people to believe in him. And yet, as you can see, there's a certain indiscriminateness. You can see that down in verse 16, 17. At some points, he just heals people. And that's how we need to be in this neighborhood. On the one hand, we need to respectfully and humbly call our neighbors to pay attention to Jesus and to say, consider his claims and consider who he is and see what spiritual riches he can give you should you believe in him and see what it means to be reconciled to the Father through what Jesus Christ has done. And yet we say, but... We are going to do what we can to alleviate need and suffering. We are going to do what we can to love our neighbors, whether they believe like we do or not, because that's how Jesus did it. So you see, his miracles are a radical agenda of caring for the needs of this world at the same time as we're seeking to help people believe in him. And lastly, not only are the miracles... See how different they are? But I'll show you one more way in which they're very different. The miracles are so different than fictional figures, uh, the supernatural power... They, uh, they, they not only alleviate suffering, but they do something else. Jesus' miracles show the deep pattern of how he saved us. Do you know how Satan tempted Jesus? If you were here a couple weeks ago when we looked at Matthew 4, we know that here's two, two of the temptations where Jesus, uh, Satan says, Jesus, use your supernatural power to turn these stones into bread. You're hungry, aren't you? Just go bread. There's another place where he says, throw yourself off of this cliff or pinnacle and come down without harming yourself and show the world who you are. What's he doing? Isn't this interesting? He's trying to say, I want you to be like Merlin. I want you to be like Superman. Because the supernatural powers, the powers of Superman, the powers of Merlin made them invulnerable, made them impossible to attack. You couldn't spear Superman. You couldn't nail Superman. You couldn't kill Superman because their supernatural power made them invulnerable. Jesus' supernatural power does not do that. The grand miracle was the incarnation in which God, the glorious God, Jesus, the Son of God, became vulnerable. When the woman with the hemorrhage touched Jesus' garment, do you remember what happened? How did he know that she had been healed? He said, power went out from me. He felt weak. Because, in other words, his strength went to her. His weakness, her weakness went to him. Isn't that interesting? Do you know how often when Jesus Christ did a miracle, it made his enemies more angry at him? So finally, when he, he raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11, his enemies said, now we've got to kill him. Jesus' supernatural power not only did not make him invulnerable, it made him more vulnerable, more spearable, more nailable, more killable. Why? The very last verse tells you, how does Jesus deal with our brokenness? He bears it. He bears it. Because if Jesus Christ had actually come to earth ready to judge all evil, destroy all the evil that was destroying the world, if Jesus Christ came to bring judgment, 
we all would be gone. Why? Because you know it's in us. You know that we're part of the problem. You know there's problems with, that evil's in us. You know that. If Jesus Christ just came to bring judgment, we'd be gone. But he came to bear the judgment. He bore it. Not just the diseases, the, 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 all the brokenness, death itself, all the, the, the curse of us turning away from God, the disintegration, the weakness, the suffering, the death that is our lot now fell on him on the cross. He bore the judgment so that someday he can come back and make the world perfect again and end all evil without ending you and me. And what that means is that the miraculous power shows that basically, here's, how, here's the deep pattern. The pattern is strength through weakness. Jesus Christ saves us by becoming weak and going to the cross and dying for us. And you and I get the power of God in our lives how? By becoming weak, by repenting, by saying we need a Savior, by saying oh, I need forgiveness, by saying I, I need a Master and a Lord. And how are we going to bless the country? How are we going to bless the neighborhood? How are we going to bless the world? How are we going to deal with cancers and slums? We, we have to become weak because the only way to really pour yourself out and to do the great works that Jesus did is to give your money away, is to give your time away, is to give your heart away. But that's what we have to do. Rodney Stark, who was a great... Uh, historian and wrote a great book called Rise of Christianity about how Christianity, why Christianity succeeded in the, in the early centuries in the Roman world, tells that one of the reasons was because when plagues went through the great cities of the Greco-Roman Empire, people were literally dying in the street. First one happened in 165 AD, another one happened a century later. Most people just stopped taking care of people and headed for the hills, but the Christians did not. Let me give you two eyewitness accounts. The first one is this. The doctors were quite incapable of treating the disease. The people became afraid to visit anyone. And as a result, thousands of people died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped one on top of the other, and half-dead creatures could be seen staggering about in the streets. What a nightmare. The catastrophe was so overwhelming that men became indifferent to every rule of morality. Many pushed sufferers away, even their dearest, often throwing them into the road before they were dead, hoping to avert contagion. But that's not how the Christians acted. See, the Christians stayed and took care of not only their own sick, but the others, the sick of the people who weren't Christians. And here's what happened. Most, this is another eyewitness account, most Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and only thinking of others. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attended to their every need, ministering to them in Christ, and many departed their life serenely happy, for they were infected by their neighbors and cheerfully accepted their pains. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, a number of elders, now listen, Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Where do you think they got that idea from? What would empower people to be that weak? And of course, Rodney Stark's whole point is that when Christians did that, you realize what enormous power and credibility the gospel message had after that. Those people died, but there was a resurrection. Those people were weak, but there was enormous power in what they did. Those people were following the pattern of Jesus 
And that's what we should be doing in this neighborhood. That's what we should be doing in this city. Do you see how the miraculous power of Jesus is so utterly different than the stories of the world? Think of that. Go and do likewise. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you'd help us now as we come to the table to uh, internalize what we've just learned with our heads. We pray that you would help us to understand better what your son did for us and what this radical agenda is now for us to live out uh, here in this neighborhood, here in this city, in our lives, in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.